0: Since January, I have been preaching through the book of Genesis, and we've been looking at the life of Abraham, kind of starting in Genesis chapter 12, and we've been going chapter by chapter, verse by verse through the book of Genesis. And when you go chapter by chapter, verse by verse through the Bible, you sometimes come to rough chapters, and you don't have an excuse to avoid them or ignore them. And this is one of those chapters, like our Old Testament reading from Judges 19, that we wish we could just ignore. We'd love to skip it and just move on to chapter 20 and think, we don't need to talk about that. But all of Scripture is inspired. All of Scripture is useful. And so instead of skipping chapter 19, we're actually going to spend two weeks looking at chapter 19. And instead of splitting it in half by verses, we are splitting it in half by themes. And so there will be a number of things we don't get to this week. Like Lot's wife. We're not talking about her this week. And other things that we're going to focus on next week. This week we are looking at sin. At the wickedness of sin and God's judgment on sin and how we see that in Sodom and Gomorrah. And next week we're going to see the response that God gives us. The response we need to have to God's judgment of sin. And so this subject matter that we are looking at today is uncomfortable. But as we look at this uncomfortable text, I want you to notice the Bible does not use tantalizing or vulgar language to describe what is happening here. And I will try to do the same with my language, recognizing the many children we have here. And so with that disclaimer in mind, we turn to Genesis 19 today. We turn to the word of God and we turn, sadly, to a passage that acts as a mirror a mirror for the sinfulness of mankind. Genesis 19, we're going to look at verses 1 through 38. Let's hear the Word of God. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting at the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, Please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked them unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out, groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here? Sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city? Bring them out of the place. For we are about to destroy this place because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law who were to marry his daughters, Up! Get out of this place! For the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seems to his sons-in-law to be jesting. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up! Take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to them, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven, and he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back, and she became a pillar of salt." And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come in to us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him that we may preserve offspring So they made their father drink wine that night also, and the younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, there are many times we love the Bible. But there are also times we don't like the Bible. There are times when we hear your word and we hear your truth and we hear what it says and it makes us uncomfortable. It grosses us out. When we have to look at wickedness, oh God, in such severity, it can be hard to look And yet, Lord, You have given us this Word and preserved it throughout the ages that we might hear Your truth. And so, God, help me to faithfully and to clearly proclaim Your Word. Holy Spirit, work through me in spite of my weakness and sin to faithfully expound and apply this text and give us ears to hear, O God. Give us ears to persevere through the awkwardness, and to hear. And may You open our hearts and minds so that Your Spirit, O God, will work through the power of Your Word to transform us, that we would accept Your Word and believe Your truth and so live for You. In Jesus' name, amen. This is not a fun chapter. Not at all. And really, the big question we are looking at today... I feel like we got a really good answer. The big question is, why must God judge sin? That's why. I mean, that's kind of the answer. That's why. That's why God must judge sin. But we need to dive deeper and to understand better because God's judgment is something we instinctively bristle against. We don't like the idea of God's judgment. We really don't. But when we are confronted with sin in this magnitude, we realize God must judge sin. So we're going to look at our text today and see the truth of the fact that God has to judge sin. So the first and most obvious thing that we see in our passage is the wickedness of sin. In our study of Genesis, there were two previous occasions where we were warned that, hey, things in Sodom are bad. But it's really not until chapter 19 where we go to Sodom that we realize, oh, it's that bad. Like, this is really bad. And so we enter Sodom with these two angels who had left Abraham, and we arrive at the gate of Sodom near evening. Now, remember that these angels, these two angels that are sometimes called men, sometimes called angels, they, they had the appearance of men on this occasion. So it wasn't obvious that, like, oh, angels are here. No, they looked like any other men. But nonetheless, Lot shows them respect and bows down to them. We don't know exactly what Lot thought of these visitors, but we knew we can see that he's like, they need to be protected. And so Lot's persistence reveals that he knows these men are in danger in the city square. He knows the kind of welcome that visitors to Sodom have received. In fact, Lot himself may have experienced this horrific welcome years earlier since he is a sojourner in that town. And Lot's fears are proved correct as we read about the disturbing behavior of the men of Sodom. And what we see in the men of Sodom in this chapter is the very worst of sin. And what I want to do is to look at it. And to look at it, because what we see in the men of Sodom essentially is multifaceted sin. It is full-grown, mature wickedness. And we can see that because they are sinning in almost every possible way. So we're going to look at seven categories of sin that show the wickedness of the men of Sodom. We'll go through them quickly. First, their sin included everyone. This was not an isolated thing. One of the clear emphases of Genesis 19 is this was not a group of bad apples. It can't say it more clearly than verse 4. It says, before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man, surrounded the house. You cannot be stronger in emphasizing the culpability of everyone than that. See, Abraham, last chapter, had asked, God, if there's just ten righteous people in Sodom, spare the city. The city's not spared. There weren't even ten. So we see that this was something that pervaded everyone in Sodom. Second, we see how their sin preyed on the vulnerable. While we know these two men are angels, the men of Sodom only know that two visitors have shown up and entered the city at night. And rather than provide for the needs of these weary travelers, they sought to use and abuse them. There are many other expressions of sin that prey on the vulnerable. You can oppress the poor and marginalized. You can see preying on the vulnerable in things like abortion and things like elder abuse. And the men of Sodom are guilty as well of preying on the vulnerable in their treatment of these visitors. The third category of sin we see here is that the men of Sodom are completely self-serving. All they want to do is satisfy their lusts. All they care about is themselves and having their desires fulfilled. There is no concern for others. In other places, the Bible compares such cravings to an animal in heat that is driven by a wild pursuit of satisfaction. The men of Sodom are no different. In fact, in the language of today, You could say the men of Sodom are following their heart, following the desires of their heart. They are completely self-serving. The fourth category of sin we see here is that their sin was violent and it was cruel. The The men of Sodom arrived at the door as a mob intent on violence. It makes us sick as we look at it. You can prey on the vulnerable, you can care about only yourself, yet you can still be nonviolent. There are nonviolent ways to sin against other people. This is a violent way to sin against others. The men of Sodom fully intended on using force to harm others and treat them terribly. Their sin is seen in so many different ways. Fifth, we see the men of Sodom also sinned by pursuing a perversion of God's natural order. These men sinned by lusting after other men. The Bible clearly teaches that this is sinful and it is undoubtedly a component of the sinfulness of the men of Sodom. Now the problem is, throughout history, some have sought to overemphasize this component of sin making it out to be the only thing the men of Sodom are guilty of. And often that is done because we can feel better about ourselves if we make sins we don't struggle with seem worse. That's wrong to do. But in more recent years, others have sought to elevate the violence of the men of Sodom so that this component doesn't seem sinful at all. That if only they had sought consensual, monogamous relationships, they wouldn't be sinning. That too is wrong. And so this is a component of their sin. It is not nothing. It is part of their sin, but it is not all of their sin. Sixth, we see that these actions were something that went unpunished in Sodom. In fact, you could say they were celebrated in Sodom. See, you can deduce that here. If this is what normally happened to visitors, as Lot knew, and if it was everyone who did it, as the text says, then who is left to say, guys, this is wrong? Who is left to punish those who have sinned in this way? In fact, it probably took on some kind of twisted community celebration. It was not something that was punished. In fact, they celebrated it. And then the seventh component of sin we see is how the men of Sodom were stubborn and would not be corrected. When Lot makes his despicable offer that we will get to in a minute, they refuse it. They are set in their ways. They will not be denied. Even after the angels strike these men with blindness, they are groping at the door, hoping that even in blindness, they will get to do what they want to do. They continue to sin after being given opportunities to stop. And so looking at these seven categories, we can see why God judges the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, to be fair, this isn't Gomorrah. The implication is this is Gomorrah is just like this. So. But this is sin at its worst. It is sin at its absolute worst. It is matured, wickedness. It is a plague and infection that has gotten into the city and all of its residents and completely spread and grown. And it touched everyone, including Lot. See, Lot in this story is clearly different from the other men. Lot does not join in the wicked mob. He invited visitors into his home. He wanted to protect them, but sin has still tainted Lot. When the mob arrives at his doors, we have to give Lot some credit here. He's in a very difficult situation. The mob could overpower him and break down the doors of his house and get to him. Lot probably did not have some safe room in his house. He did not have some escape tunnel or anything like that. He's stuck. But in his position of stuckness, Lot does what is unthinkable to us. He offers the mob his virgin daughter's. And it freaks us out. You, you read this in our Old Testament reading and you just are like, this can't be right. Who accidentally wrote this? We want to cling to the idea that isn't Lot the good guy in our story? He can't do this. And so we try to justify Lot's actions. We try to make sense. Lot, what are you doing? And, and perhaps the best possible explanation that we can come to is that Lot is just like reverse psychologizing here. And like, I know they're not going to accept my offer and this is going to buy me some time. That's a pretty flimsy excuse. It's the best we can possibly make Lot look because we can't make sense of Lot's actions. We can't make this bad decision a good one. He's in a bad situation and he made a bad choice. He had been in Sodom too long And he was now infected by Sodom. And so what we are meant to see in Sodom is the very worst of sin. That this is what a world without God looks like. This is what it looks like when sin takes hold of people. That if humans try to live on their own, according to their own desires, this is the destiny of mankind. And what we see is not a pinnacle of progress, It is not a town of tolerance. It is a city governed by Satan. It's hell on earth. It is true wickedness. And because of that, we're like, yeah, I can see that God needs to judge this. Because only in seeing sin's wickedness can we really see that this severe judgment is what is necessary. See, God could not be good if he just looked at Sodom and did nothing. God could not be good if he just said, eh, we'll let it slide. In order for God to be good, he must also be just. And God wants to rid his world of sin. And so in chapter 19, God does what he would tell Abraham that he was going to do. God told him ahead of time, I'm going to judge Sodom and Gomorrah for their grave sin. And everyone except Lot and his daughters are killed in God's righteous wrath. Everyone associated with Sodom is put to death as an act of God's just judgment. And it is a total judgment. It says he overthrew those cities and all the valley, all the inhabitants of the cities, and what grew on the ground. The judgment is so complete that the vegetation is dead. The grass died. That's how severe God's judgment was. Now, people today will often joke about old fire and brimstone preaching about hell. And there's all kinds of jokes about it. I've made my share of them. Genesis 19 is not a laughing matter. Fire and sulfur rain down on this city and kill all the inhabitants. This is no accident. This was God's purposeful judgment against sin. And this earthly judgment is meant to serve as a glimpse of the eternal fires of hell. Our New Testament reading from Jude mentioned how the fiery judgment of Sodom is an example for us of the eternal fires of hell. It's a foretaste of what awaits the wicked after death. You see, the punishment that sin deserves is not just an earthly judgment and death in this life. It is a second spiritual death of suffering in hell. And it's like, man, that's harsh. That's harsh. That sounds really severe. I get that. I've felt that way. Parts of me still feel that way. Because we often react to hell in one of two ways. Some of us, we simply dislike the idea and we never go beyond that. We think, I don't like the idea of hell. I don't want to believe that. And so we don't. End of story. And the other way we can respond to hell is we're just we actually want to object. That doesn't seem fair. That seems way... A torment for eternity seems way too severe for even the worst people in the world, right? But God is the judge. And God is not taking suggestions from sinners like us. I don't know of any judge in our world today that before making his verdict pulls the people in prison and says, what do you think I should do? God judges justly. You see, we want our human judges to be good, moral people. Well, God is better than any human judge. And this is what He has decided. We may not like it. We may feel it is unfair. But God says it is good. It is just. That sin deserves this kind of punishment. And really, I think we all know that we need some kind of punishment after death. Because there are some who are wicked who seem to get away with punishment. You can think about historical examples of guys like Adolf Hitler who commit suicide before he can be held accountable for his crimes. More recent examples of people who do some kind of mass shooting and then also take their own lives so they don't have to suffer. You can think about those who sin, but their sin is not discovered until after they die a natural death. And you can ask, where's the justice? Well, God makes sure it is there after death. And God will judge severely because sin is so severe, it needs a severe judgment. He wants to get rid of sin on earth. And we see it's hard to get rid of sin on earth. Because just when you think the story of Sodom and Lot is going to be over, you enter the cave with Lot and his daughters. And when you get to verses 30 through 38, I don't know about you, but I certainly am thinking, why is this here? Did we have to include this, like, awful ending? Couldn't we have just stopped with Lot and his daughters escaping? Why? Why does it have to get worse? Haven't we had enough of sin? And that's how this chapter should make us feel. That we're like, oh, we're finally at the end. No! And there's more. Because sin's hard to get rid of. Think about the story of Noah's Ark. God said, the world is so wicked that I'm going to wash all of the sin away in a worldwide flood. I'll save Noah, who's righteous, and his family, those eight people, and I'm going to preserve them. And so the ark, they survive, and God's judgment happens, and they get out of the boat, and there's cute animals, and there's rainbows, and everything is literally rainbows, you know? And then the very next story is Noah sins, and his son sins against him. See, God cleansed the world of sin, but sin stowed away on the ark. And the ending of chapter 19 should remind us not to feel better than the people of Sodom because sin has stowed away in our hearts as well. It can be so easy to read this chapter and think we are different from the people consumed in sulfur and fire. It is so tempting to think I would never be in that mob. But while the people of Sodom may have sinned in a way that's more brazen than your sin, you are still guilty of sin. And while the people of sin may sin at greater degrees and greater speeds, greater intensity than you, our hearts are on the same trajectory. Our Old Testament reading from Judges 19 teaches us this. Israel would have always thought they are better than Sodom and Gomorrah. We've never done anything that bad. But they were wrong. Only 600 or so years later, Israel had its own Sodom moment in Gibeah. They revealed they were capable of the same kinds of sin And the story of Lot and his daughters in the cave reminds us that even if God wiped out every person that you thought was truly wicked, the world would still be plagued with sin. Even if God wiped out those people who sin in that way, sin would still remain. Even if God struck down every single person who is not in church on a regular basis, the world would still have plenty of sin to go around. Sin is bad, not just because of what it does, but because of how hard it is to get rid of. And so God must judge sin because it's like a stubborn weed that roots deep in our hearts that doesn't ever seem to go away. It keeps coming back. I know we have a hillside over behind our house that I swear we've killed all of those weeds three times. And they're back. Again. Stronger. Fiercer. That's sin in our hearts too. Because sin corrupts and pervades us. It corrupts our thoughts. It poisons our attitudes. It twists our desires. And the trajectory of sin sets our hearts in the direction of Sodom. And God shows that Sodom must be judged with eternal fire. And so we're left like, what do I do? How do I avoid this fire? How do I escape? Well, how does Lot escape? Verse 29 tells us, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow. Lot was pulled to safety because of God's promise to another. Lot was saved because of Abraham. Lot was not saved because he was better than the men of Sodom, but because he had a relationship with someone else. And that is our only hope of escaping God's judgment for sin as well. But our hope's not in Abraham. It's in one of his long descendants, Jesus. Because Jesus knew that sin had to be judged. God couldn't just save sinful people and just ignore their sin, just let our sin slide, because that's not just, and God is just. And so Jesus, who never sinned, who was free from sin's corruption, willingly submitted himself to God's judgment. He took upon Himself the punishment for our sin so that the Father's justice would be satisfied and now we can be forgiven. But forgiveness is not enough. Sin still remains in us. Our hearts still have that default setting where we want to go to Sodom that we need more help than just forgiving our sin. And so when Jesus saves us, He sends the Holy Spirit to us who breathes new life into our sinful hearts so the weeds of sin start to wither. And like the angels who took Lot by the hand and pulled him to safety, so the Holy Spirit pulls us away from sin and onto a new trajectory towards a better city than the city of Sodom. That city may seem small now, when the world around us can seem so wicked, but that city is an eternal kingdom under the just rule of our holy and merciful God. And by God's sanctifying grace, our lives can reflect that kingdom. And we can pray for our church to resemble that kingdom until we enjoy that kingdom in its total fullness. Let us pray. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. Sin's a hard topic. Total wickedness is worse. And it is hard to hear. And yet you warn us of your judgment out of your love. You warn us so that we might turn from sin and turn towards you. And you don't simply warn us, but by your Spirit working through your Word, you take us by the hand and pull us out of sin. I pray, O God, that you would work in our hearts and so draw us to you. Deaden our desires for sin. And help us hunger for You, O God. And so save us. Help us to be shining lights that would point others to salvation as well. In Jesus' name, amen.